Good morning. Really glad that you guys are here, and I hope that you will feel the presence of God here this morning. We're here to engage God. We're glad for those of you guys who are connecting online, and we hope that you engage God too. And for those who are online, we do invite you to join us when you can. Our chairs are sanitized every week. We have spaced them out, and we try to respect the need for social distancing. And if you want safer than we can provide in this room, we stream it to the student sanctuary across the hall, and a mask is required in there. But we think gathering as a church is a really, really big deal. Listening, guys, the church is God's idea. Sometimes the word church gives people the wrong idea. It's not about a building. In Greek, word, the, the word means to assemble, to gather, to congregate. And assembling and gathering and congregating as God people is a really big deal. People of God have been gathering together on the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, for millennia. Because we need each other and there's a power when we gather you may not be ready to go back to Cap City yet. If not, how about assembling or gathering a few of your friends or family in one of your homes because it's too important to go it alone. And eventually, if not Cap City, might find some other God-honoring church and make it home. So here we go. Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? Some people lean in a little bit. They're kind of curious, maybe a little concerned. Other people kind of lean way back, way back. We're not going to get into one of those crazy, the end is near sermons again, are we? Because that statement evokes such different responses from the people of God. Some people immediately start thinking left behind or the harbinger for you old guys, the late great planet Earth. Some of you guys start thinking about preachers on TV with their great hair. That's why I can't be a TV preacher. I don't have great hair, right? In fact, just this last week, Pat Robertson made the news again predicting Trump's going to win next month, followed by mass civil unrest in the United States, leading to an attack on Israel by her emboldened enemies. Then an asteroid is going to hit the earth and quite possibly the end of the world. Message from God? Wacko? And how many times have we heard stuff like that about Jesus is coming back and they'll predict the near time or the day and so far they have one thing in common. They have always been wrong. Others get nervous. Jesus is coming back soon. I'm not sure I'm ready yet. I've got a lot of living to do, which for a lot of people means I've got a lot of sinning to do. Others are kind of like, well, it's about time. Life's hard. Life's a mess. This world's messed up. We need God to intervene. And unfortunately, the Jesus followers who talk the most about Jesus coming back and those who are listened to the most are what one guy calls eschatomaniacs, obsessed with watching the signs and calculating the season if they can. Here's an example. Now, you can't read the details. That's okay. I just find this a website that's kind of interesting to me. I've view it periodically. It's called raptureready.com and they compare 45 different biblical signs of the end with what's going on in the world and score each one of these signs with one to five. According to their scale, if the points are 100 or less, the prophetic activity is very low, probably no chance. If it's 100 to 130, the prophetic activity is moderate. 130 to 160, it's heavy. 
get ready. If the number's above 160, fasten your seatbelts. That's their language. Well, last Monday, October the 19th, the Rapture Index score was 181. Fasten your seatbelts. Or not. I don't think it works quite this way. Getting a clear picture of when and how and what exactly is going to happen when Jesus comes back is hard. Wrapping our brains around the apocalyptic language of the Bible is hard. So much of it is metaphorical, figurative. Earnest Christian people simply can't agree on what it means. Is there really going to be a rapture? What's all this stuff about millennialism and post-millennials, pre-millennials, all-millennials? What about the beast, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, the Armageddon, New World Order? Here's the good news. We're not going there this morning. One of these days, one of the guys might be right. Bottom line, too often they're a distraction. Jesus says, I'll be back. And we buy it. Show you. And that means a lot. It matters a lot. But Jesus didn't think it necessary to give us a playbook. In fact, what Jesus does says, say is that about that day or about that hour, about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even, not only, not even me, Jesus says, just my Father. About the day or the hour, what's going to happen exactly, when it's going to happen exactly, no one knows. No matter how many preachers you listen to with their charts and graphs, no matter how many of the left-behind books that you may have read, I think we're not supposed to get obsessed over what we don't know. I think we're supposed to focus on what we do know, which is enough. And actually a bit. We know for sure that Jesus is coming back. You know how? He said so, clearly. And if a guy can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, and if that guy tells you he's coming back, I'd take it seriously. That last supper, the night before he was arrested, the day before he died, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me. There's more than enough room in my father's house. And he says, when everything is ready, I am going to come get you. I'm going to be back so that you'll always be with me where I am. I am coming back. About six weeks later, after the resurrection, the disciples literally watched Jesus lifted up into the clouds, which is weird. And they're kind of standing there, and their eyes are bugging out, and their mouths are hanging open, and these two angels show up, and the angels say this, why are you guys standing there like dorks staring up into heaven? Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven. Someday he's going to be back from heaven. He's coming back in the same way you saw him go. He will be back. And they latched onto that. They bought it. Apostle Peter, the same guy who denied Jesus three times before the resurrection, this is what he writes a little later on. He says, the day of the Lord is going to come as unexpectedly as a thief. The day of the Lord, when he comes back, and then the heavens are going to pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in a fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Holy cow. That's wild. You believe that? James was the brother of Jesus physically. 
didn't believe in Jesus prior to the resurrection, became a fierce Jesus follower after it. Here's what he writes. He says, I know life's really hard. It's really, really hard sometimes, but you've got to be patient. You've got to take courage because the coming of our Lord, the coming of Jesus, his coming back is near. He is coming back. John, apostle who probably knew him best. John says, we're already God's kids. How cool is that? But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears again, when he comes back. But we do know that we will be like him for we're going to see him as he really is. Next time, he says, everyone's going to recognize Jesus. Everyone's going to know exactly who he is. And next time he comes, you're going to be changed. You're going to be transformed, morphed somehow. So, because we trust in a guy who can pull off his own resurrection, and because we trust in the very ordinary guys who were used by God to build a church that has survived everything that has come against it for millennia, we believe it. Jesus is coming back. That's one thing we know for sure. Beyond that, a few sketchy details. Jesus used Paul to be one of the lead teachers of the early church. Paul is another one who started out thinking Jesus was a fraud until he had a face-to-face with the risen Jesus, and then he sold out, and he started planting churches all over the Roman Empire. About 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he planted a church in a place called Thessalonica, which is in Greece, above Athens there, about 20 years after Jesus. He was only there for a short time, for about a month before he was arrested for disturbing the peace and run out of town. Well, how much could he teach these guys in just a month? What could they know about Jesus in just a month? They knew, they knew he was the Messiah. They knew he had been crucified for their sins. They knew that God had raised him from the dead. They knew that he had returned to the Father. They knew that he was coming back. All that was cool. When? They had no clue, no idea. And then something started happening that confused them. People started dying. He hadn't come back yet. I mean, John got a heart attack, died. Tammy got pneumonia, died. Sam was going to work, got hit by a chariot, died. All three, dead. What now? They're not going to be there when Jesus comes back. Are they hosed? Silly question to you, because we have Thessalonians. They didn't. They're confused. So they write a letter to Paul. They say, give us some help. What's going to happen? And Paul writes a letter, and this is part of what he writes. He says, now, dear brothers and sisters, we want to know. We want you to know what will happen to the believers who've already died so that you're not going to grieve like the people who have no hope. You're going to grieve as Jesus followers when someone you love dies. But you're not going to grieve like a person who has no hope because we know the story's not done. We know it's barely begun. Paul says... For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, because we trust Jesus, because he rose from the dead, that's the foundation for our hope. We also believe that when he comes back, he will be back. God will bring back with him the believers who have already died. Oh, so he's not going to leave anybody behind. See, when you die in this world, your body goes into the ground, your spirit, your soul go up to be with God. Okay? When he comes back, come back with him. Your body's going to be raised. 
Paul says, we tell you this directly from the Lord, we who are still living when the Lord returns, maybe some of us, I don't know, we will not meet him ahead of those who have died, for the Lord himself is going to come down from heaven with a commanding shout. He's not going to sneak in this time. With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, he's not going to be born in some manger. He's not going to be incognito. When he comes back, everyone's going to know he's going to be back, and everybody's going to know who he is. And when he comes back next time, every single knee will bow. Do you believe that? If he comes back like this, you better believe it. First, Paul says, believers who've already died, their bodies are going to rise from the grave somehow. I don't know what that's going to look like. And they're going to be changed. They're going to be morphed. And then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and will be with the Lord forever. And Paul says, encourage each other with these words. Okay? So what do we know? He's coming back. When? I don't know. But he's coming back, and I believe that because if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, and if that guy says, I'm coming back, I'm going to listen. When he comes back, the dead in Christ are going to be raised somehow. I don't know exactly what that means, what that's going to look like, but it doesn't worry me that God can pull it off. Imagine, guys, you know, if, if God literally can create everything with a word, and I figure it's not too hard for him to pull off a few resurrections, right? And we know that both the living and the, those that he resurrects, our bodies are going to be changed somehow. Apostle Paul put it like this in another place. He says, we will not all die. You know, we might be here. But we're all going to be transformed. It's going to happen in a moment in the blink of the eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds... Those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. We're going to be changed. We're going to be changed. Exactly what we're going to be changed like, I don't know, but we're going to be readied for what's coming next because there is something coming next. And that's when things really start sounding weird to a lot of people. You know why? Because they've never happened before. But they're coming, Jesus says. There's going to be a, a judgment. A judgment. Everyone's going to stand before God and all of our excuses, our justifications, our rationalizations are not going to work. Trying to blame someone else for your sins, trying to blame Satan, trying to blame God. You made me this way, God. It's not going to work. You're going to be standing before God. The all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-just God. Apostle John had a vision of what that day is going to be like. He said, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. Holy cow. Books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in those books. Sea gave up its dead. Death and grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds, which sounds scary. In fact, it sounds like mortifyingly scary on steroids if it weren't for Jesus and grace. Jesus put it like this. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when I come back in my glory, and all the angels with me, I'm going to sit on this glorious throne, and the nations are going to be gathered in my presence, and I'm going to judge. I'm going to separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And those who have bent their knees to Jesus will receive grace, and those who have not 
It's judgment day. That bothers a whole lot of people. I mean, he's supposed to be a good God, right? He's supposed to be a God of grace, and there's a judgment day, seriously? But listen, guys. Answer this question. Could God be good without judgment? And how could a good and holy God do otherwise? If sin actually does corrupt and degrade and pervert and destroy, how could a good God let it go unanswered? A parent who never calls sin, sin, is not a good parent. A parent who never deals with the sins of their kids is not a good parent. A God who never calls sin, sin, a God who never makes things right once and for all is not a good God. We can't make things right. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. So God says, someday, I am going to make everything right. Because he is good, and he is holy, and he is perfectly just. So he's coming back. And when he comes back, the dead in Christ are going to be raised, and there's going to be a judgment. Every man, every woman, every child is going to stand before God, and we're going to face one of two outcomes. One of two outcomes. Because this world is only prologue. We believe that. This life is only prologue. But it makes a profound difference in how you live your life in this world right now, if we understand that. What comes next is infinitely more important. On the one hand, there's heaven. It's really the wrong word for it. Heaven is not the final destination for a Jesus follower. We're told that there's going to be a recreation, a new heaven and a new earth. Everything that is corrupt is going to be purged, kind of the ultimate do-over, a recreation, a restoration, kind of an extreme makeover on steroids. Apostle Peter puts it like this. He says, we're looking forward to new heavens and a new earth that he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. What will it be like? For some people, this is just a fairy tale, just a fairy tale. Isaac Asimov is one of my favorite writers. In fact, right now in my truck, I'm going back through the Foundation series on Audible whenever I have time. Asimov says, I don't believe in an afterlife. So I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or even fearing heaven more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven might be worse. Ever heard of Stephen Hawking? He's just as stubborn. He says, I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. Then he says, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. Hmm. Woody Allen, ever heard of him? I like the way he put it. He's not quite so sure. He says, I don't believe in the afterlife either, but I'm going to bring a change of underwear just in case. Some people don't think the idea of heaven even sounds attractive. Friedrich Nietzsche. He said, in heaven, all of the interesting people are missing. <laughs> it's clueless. Mark Twain says it a bit more humorously. He says, you go to heaven for the climate, you go to hell for the company. You might be surprised. Robin Williams puts it like this. He says, I think you get your dreams. You get your dreams. He says, I think a preview of coming attractions in heaven and hell are there in your dreams if you believe in heaven and hell. 
Really? As if God is going to be limited by our puny little dreams and imaginations? The great theologian Oprah Winfrey put it like this. She says, my idea of heaven is a great big baked potato and someone to share it with. How sad. A little. That's it. Now, I grew up not really wanting to go to heaven. Bottom line, I grew up believing in God and grew up in the church. But I was told that heaven is going to be an eternal worship service. I mean, 60, 65 minutes is enough, isn't it? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Holy cow. Kind of like a Bill Gaither concert that never ends. Or for you younger guys, an eternal ichthus festival. Well, I was a kid whose dad was a music teacher, so I had to play music all of the time, and that sounded kind of like hell. Well, actually sounded a little better than hell, but I kind of wished for a third option. Other Jesus followers picture heaven as a place where all of your dreams can come true. What do you want? Kind of like Robin Williams, a place of eternal indulgence. Eat whatever I want, never get fat. Play golf whenever I want, free, and no slow golfers to aggravate you. Can reunite with family and friends, always happy, always about me. I hope not. How little, how empty, how small, how boring a place like that would be eventually. Jesus did give us a peek when he worked all of those miracles on earth when he was with us. See, Jesus didn't come to this earth to heal everybody physically. He didn't come to cast out every demon, to still every storm, to raise everybody who had died. He did enough of that to show us that he could and that he will someday. Someday he's going to purge this world of sin. He's going to restore us to what we were meant to be. And he's going to allow us to live the life we were created to live. I think. From the clues that he gives us. I don't have time to unpack all of the clues about what life might be like on this new earth. Just a peek. Some things that won't be there. No boredom. That's silly. No death, no suffering, no funeral homes, abortion clinics, psychiatric wards, no rape, no missing children, no drug rehab center, no racism, no bigotry, no riots, no muggings, no killings, no worry, depression, economic downturns, no war, no anguish over failures of miscommunication, no conmen, no locks, no arthritis, handicaps, strokes, heart attacks, cancer, COVID, no unemployment, Taxes, bills, no weeds, traffic jams, accidents, septic tank backups, no unwanted emails or cyberbullying, close friendships but no clicks, laughter but no put-downs, intimacy but no immorality, no hidden agenda, no backroom deals, no betrayal. Can you imagine meals? full of stories and laughter and joy without fear of insensitivity or inappropriate behavior. No anger, gossip, lust, jealousy, hurt feelings, or anything that would eclipse your joy. No one's going to be hungry. Everyone is going to be satisfied. That's his promise. Relationships that are deeper and stronger than anything you can imagine on earth. Different, 
better, infinitely better. And all of that stuff is little. It's the tip of the iceberg. What stuns me is we can't even get excited about the big part. We're going to do life with God. Life with God as we were meant to. It doesn't sound attractive to us because we're clueless. We're actually going to get to do life with God as we were created to do life with God. And there's going to be a fullness and a peace and a joy that is going to blow your minds. For those who accept the grace of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father without going through him. Only those? I know most people believe they're going to make it to heaven if there is one. Hell is only reserved for those who are terrible or at least worse than I am. According to one Dateline report, 89% of us believe in heaven, 73% of us still believe in hell, but three-quarters of us expect to be in heaven and only 2% of us expect to be in hell. Jesus pictures it differently. Jesus says you can enter God's kingdom only through a narrow gate. Highway to hell is broad, its gate is wide for many who choose that way, who choose that way. The gateway to life is very narrow and difficult and only a few find it. You know why it's so hard? Because it requires embracing the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. It requires bending your knees to Jesus. He says no one comes to the Father without coming through me and we, we buy it. There's a heaven and there's a hell. Apostle Paul gives us a peek from a vision that John gave him. He says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, and the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, death and the grave gave up their dead. They were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into a lake of fire. It's the second death. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Hmm. What's that going to be like exactly? I don't have a clue. I don't think anyone really knows. Eternal torment, eternal separation from God, eternal destruction, I don't know. What I know is that I don't want to end up there. And I don't want any of you to end up there. And I don't want any of them to end up there if we can help it. Nor does God, who desires every person to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. A God who wants that so badly that he would send his own son to die for us to keep us from going there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever would choose him, will not perish but have eternal life. So guys, we can't know when he's going to be back. We can't know exactly the details. He just gives these peaks. But we can be ready. Are you ready? No matter when it happens, are you ready? 
Now, being ready is not about trying to calculate the day, the time, the season. Being ready is not about hunkering down and focusing on me and mine as we prepare for that day. Being ready is not about being so obsessed with heaven that we are of no earthly good. It's about doing life with God, for God, God's way right now. That's what being ready means. It means remembering who you are and what you stand for. It's about staying on mission, doing whatever it takes to give those around us a taste of Jesus and dragging as many as we can with us to heaven. In fact, Jesus actually gave us the formula. He told us how to be ready, how to get ready. There were some of his final words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, this is how you do it. He says, go, make disciples of all of the nations. Make disciples. Start with your kids. Start with your friends. He says, as you go out into the world, make disciples of everyone you can, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given to you. Teach them how to do life with me, for me, my way. And then he said this, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. So here it is, guys, listen. If we are on mission, we're ready. If you're doing life with God, for God, God's way, you are ready. If you're doing life in this world without fear, with a profound confidence that exudes from this hope, if you're doing life with a lightness, even a joy, you're ready. In other words, be Jesus followers. Be, be the church. Stand tall. You're ready. By the way, that's where we're going next week and the rest of November. We're going to talk about what it means to do life as Jesus followers in this world, what it means to be the church that Christ built. So are you ready? If you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, you're not. Life in this world, life in the next starts by bending your knees to Jesus, calling him the Lord of your life. Guys, if he really rose from the dead, he deserves that. And that's where life starts, both in quantity as well as quality. That's where life starts. If he's nudging at you to bend your knees to him, why push back? Why would you push back about doing life with your God? And maybe that you're a Jesus follower, but you don't feel any of this confidence, you don't feel any of this peace, you haven't, you don't understand the hope that you have in Christ. You've got some work to do. Are you ready? I'm going to bow my head in a minute. I'm going to pray a prayer, and after that prayer, we're going to sing a song. Guys, this is a time. This is a time for you to examine who you are. Are you ready? We've got an elder back there praying for you in the prayer room. If you want to go chat with him, I'm going to sit right up here. We've got elders around. Vern is right over here. We'd love to chat with you. During the next song, come on up, chat with us. After the service, we're going to hang here for a couple of minutes. Come on up and let's talk about doing life with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for hope. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.